All right, welcome back to the Rabbit Rabbit Hole podcast. Today I have my guest, Professor Linda Lauchs. She's a professor of biology at the University of Central Oklahoma. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for asking me to come. Yeah, and so you research bats. You teach yes. biology here yes. at school. You teach sustainability. Uh, how'd you get into bats? Well, it's been a while, but I, I will never forget the day um, that I actually got kind of... Uh, bitten by the bug, yeah. <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, when I took, as an undergrad, I was in mammalogy, and um, it was probably, I think it was 1993, and um, I had taken this professor before, Dr. Kerr, and um, for general biology, and I liked him a lot, and I thought, oh, I'll take mammalogy, because I was getting close to the end, and uh, upper level classes and and so a lot of bio majors start taking the ologies where you're you know specifically studying a group and so I took mammalogy and um, you know he was a bat guy and uh, bats and rats he loves mice and bats and and had a lot of cool stories and uh, he encouraged the students to go out in the field and and collect and at that time this is before some of those viruses that are you know around now at yeah. that time students were still going out and uh, trapping and then processing out in the field and uh, so I went on a few of those trips and one of them was to the Alabaster Caverns area and, and where is uh, that located it's northwestern Oklahoma like close to uh, in the Panhandle Woodward. yeah okay. well not quite it's oh. like um, Moreland area it's it's north of Sealing and east of Woodward and okay. so uh, Freedom Oklahoma is pretty close so it's not quite to the Panhandle but uh -huh. you know pretty pretty far north from here, about three hours, three and a half hours, depending on how fast you drive. Yeah. So the first time I went out there, um, we all were at the picnic tables at Alabaster State Park. You know, they have bat caves there, and we were processing, you know, mice. And that night we set up a bunch of mist nets, and so that's what bat researchers use. They set up these uh, really thin uh, nylon nets, and when the bats come out at night, some of them get trapped in the net, and then you can pull them out and see what kind of diversity you have and take measurements. Really? And, yeah, so that's and how you cap That's how you them. trap them yeah, to, for studies? in the summer or fall, like when they're before hibernation. So that was my first experience going out in the field and, and working with bats. I, you know, when I was a little kid, I went to Carlsbad, New Mexico with my parents, and I always thought that bats were interesting and had one of those little field guide books you know <laughs> yeah. when I was a kid and but I never dreamed I'd like be holding them and he would talk about them in class and so we went out and we had gloves on um you know to handle the bats and so uh, another student and I were pulling some of them out of the nets and I thought this is one of the coolest things I've ever done because we went across the highway to another location and set up some uh, mist nets and I just thought that it was one of those defining moments like that you have sometimes with just total it's just, clarity. It's just the, the moment where you open your eyes and you're like, this is it. Right. Yeah. Like you get that feeling and you're like, oh my gosh, I, you know, this is so neat. Like that night I just thought this is one of the coolest things I've ever done. And then at that point on, I was like super interested. So the next trip that they took um, from mammalogy where they were going to look at bats again, um, it was during hibernation. So... It was like kind of the different spectrum, basically, because yeah. they were awake and active, and there were lots of different types of bats and um, several different species that we caught that night. So then we went to caves that were specific to you know one type of bat that hibernates in it, and it 
now UCO has that land. It's where the Selman Living Lab is, but at the time it was still owned by, you know, uh, Betty Selman. And um, so she had a ranch, and, and there were these bats there, and it was really close to Alabaster Caverns, and Care, Dr. Care was going up there and uh, for years, and, and they developed a relationship. And, you know, at some point she said, hey, do you think that you'd be interested in these caves? And what's neat is um, the Selman Living Lab that UCO, you know, has that property now, um, the largest hibernacula for the bat that I ended up studying in graduate school. Really? That's pretty is cool. in Oklahoma, yeah. and it's there. And then across the, the way from her, you know, ranch where she had her cattle, fairly close to her house, is another cave that has Mexican free-tail bats, which is... You totally know, different? Totally different migratory bats. Okay. They go to Mexico, they come back here to Oklahoma have their young their offspring and then they migrate down they don't spend the winters here so um anyway so there was another cave with different bats in it and i think the wildlife department has that cave so they wow. take people out there it's called the selman bat cave so the selman cave system is where those hibernating uh, cave myotis bats are and so when i went into those caves another extremely cool moment for me and i just thought this is so incredible yeah. and it was really different than you know in the summer when they're active and you're wearing gloves and you know you you're carefully you know investigating what you have and then releasing them so during hibernation you know they're in like the state of torpor where they're uh, kind of sleeping in a sense they decrease their metabolic activity and so we were examining some of them and he just mentioned um, how it seemed like there were more females than males in this particular cave system. And, you know, I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind, and I thought, I wonder why, you know. And so I thought, why would there be more females than males? So fast forward, you know, a few months, I was getting to the end of my undergraduate um, degree, and I thought it would be really cool. You know, I'm not moving to the ocean anytime soon. I thought marine biology, like many biology majors, you know, want to do marine. Thought, well, I'm not moving to the ocean anytime yeah. soon. I had a boyfriend who I eventually married and had, you know, children with, and he was still uh, in school. And I thought, well, you know, what can I do right now? I'm not ready to go out in the world and start working yet. I think I really want to do research. And yeah. so I approached Dr. Care and said, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about sticking around you know, would you take me on as a graduate student? And he said, what kinds of projects are you interested in? And I said, I definitely want to work with the bats. Yeah. He said, well, I have a lot of ideas, and maybe you have some. And he said, why don't you write up a proposal of kind of some of your ideas, and we'll talk about it. And um, and so I did, and he said, yeah. And I was like, wow, this is like a victory for me. He has agreed to, you know, take me on and mentor yeah. me. And um what was and your that's when it started what was your proposal to for your first study well at the time what i wanted to do what i had filed away was there are more females yeah. than males and i thought i wonder why and could we look at that so and that's, I had, yeah so that's, that's what, what you I were able to study with. Yeah. right off the bat that's right pretty cool the bats you're so, able to look into your very pretty yeah. much your first question of bats right. was that and that's pretty yeah. cool to that's pretty cool because i mean just personally speaking i would assume like you would you would find your path and then develop a question. You had a question and then found your path, really. Yeah. And that's pretty interesting. Well, he kind of, you know, he's one of those people. I mean, he really has a, a deep scientific mind where yeah. 
one question leads to about 10 more <laughs> and he's always questioning things and uh, throwing he ideas goes down the rabbit there. hole oh yeah <laughs> definitely goes down the rabbit hole yeah. yeah all the time and so and if you're lucky enough to be around him you kind of can go along for the ride so that's sort of what happened i mean he had mentioned that and i you know thought i want to investigate that and so that's what i initially set out to do but you know what happens so often in science is your plan or what you think you're going to end up doing or the question you want to answer, sometimes it spins into other things yeah. or you don't ever get the full, you know, answer. It just leads to more questions. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of happened to us a little bit. But, you know, he was a great mentor and um, he went out to some of these caves with me and then he kind of let me go and said, let me know if you need any help. And I was like, what? Wait, you're just letting me go out and yeah. do my own thing? And it was terrifying to me, but that is how I learned. You know, it's kind of like when uh, you have children and you're parenting, you want to lead them in the right direction, but at some point you have to let them go and they have to figure it out. And that's what he did. And as scared as I was, you know, afraid of failing or disappointing him or you know, not figuring things out, yeah. you know, I think it, it allowed me to figure out that I could do things on my own. So you really, you appreciated that, yes. that like freedom or the release yeah. of the leash, I guess, Yes. for lack of better terms. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So what was your very first species that you studied on that? Or was it multiple species? Well, the, the first one, the one that I wanted to look at sex ratio, um, the, the initial study that I had was this. This is cave myotis. Um, Very myotis small. Bellifer. Yeah. A lot I mean, smaller than I thought. I, yeah. I was expecting something probably along the lines of over there. Yes, right. Yeah. Uh, I've definitely never seen a bat that big. Oh, and I've never, I didn't know they got small. that small. Even oh, that yeah. one down yeah. there. Yeah, I mean, some of these, this is the smallest bat in Oklahoma, but the smallest bat in the world is weighs less than a penny. It's in Thailand, the bumblebee bat. How big do they... How big do they get? Oh, they're compared to that smaller one? than this. Really? I mean, their body size is uh, probably half of that, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, they weigh less wow. than a penny. I've only seen, uh, well, a specimen. I've never seen one live. I've yeah. never been to Thailand, but when we were doing research at the Smithsonian, uh, well, now it's been you know several years back, but uh, I was like, we should look at their bumblebee bat. <laughs> and so we did while we were there, and I was like, oh wow, this is you know really cool. So this is the smallest one in Oklahoma, and even though the cave myotis, the one that I studied, you know, they hibernate in Oklahoma. Um, so the caves are filled with these guys, uh, the ones that we went to looking for them specifically. There are these bats as well. They're pipistrelle bats. And so they're found in a lot of caves in Oklahoma, but they're, they don't roost in colonies. Like Velifer can get in these huge colonies, that, uh, the clusters that have like thousands of bats and one big cluster and then these will be like in singles like, oh really yeah they're just found out. on their own <laughs> yeah for the most part yes every time i've ever seen them they've been singles yeah. do they have a similar mating season as like uh mammal like deer or elk or like those migratory land animals yeah they are um the bats in oklahoma that almost all of them are insectivorous you know there's a few that eat like this one eats grasshoppers and most of these eat flying bugs like mosquitoes and you know moths and whatnot but um, the ones that hibernate they go through mating season in the fall they call it swarming season this is before they're before hibernation they have um, 
delayed fertilization, which is interesting. So they do their mating in the fall, and then they're, they don't go through the process of having the offspring implantation until they come out of hibernation. Really? That's so, interesting. Because yeah. so, you would think they, or personally, I would think they lose, you know, uh, nutrients and body mass through hibernation but yet they're producing a yeah offspring, offspring right that's interesting it's almost like the timing you know because they are feeding on insects and there aren't any in the winter so that's why their mechanism for survival is to go through this torpor you know for months and then when they come out of that when it warms up then all the bugs come back and all the flowering plants and then you know voila they're ready to roll you know ready to have their offspring so they normally in oklahoma anyway they start and well this bat in particular they um, have their offspring over you know a period of time parturition is what we call it the period of time where they're having offspring so it for these guys where we went to some maternity roots that are specific for where they go they they transition they have caves they go to to hibernate and then they go to different caves and have their babies. Do they so, do they lay eggs or do they actually no, it's like how do they like have us. their offspring? Really, they bear live young, just like how us. many at a time, roughly? Well, or these on average? guys, well, most bats just have one offspring really? a year, just one. Except these bats, I might have talked about these before in class, but there's I brought three of them, the tree bats, and there's three in Oklahoma. Uh, that are right here that one's funky looking yeah this one's a pretty good sized bat yeah um so that's probably that's probably about the size i've always thought they yeah, were yeah they're not super abundant like there's there's some spread out in several collections in oklahoma and you know we have a handful and ou has a few in osu and then a few other universities but they're they're not like super abundant not like these bats that hibernate or the free tails that migrate in that the colonies get up to several hundred thousand but these wow. guys have more than one offspring and um, oftentimes they'll have three but they have four mammary glands so they can actually provide milk to four babies right? yeah and so the rest of the bats outside of the tree bats they'll only have one because they have two mammary glands like us and then right after you know they give birth the the bats the babies will stay in the cave and you know they feed on the milk until they can fly out of the cave and that takes three to four weeks and they start coming out of the cave and and beginning that feeding process the offspring so. can't be too big if no. they're i mean they're already not big no. so the offspring has to be like the size Small. of in, some insects i have like these bats are not native to oklahoma but these are pretty young bats probably new flyers and uh, these are from the zoo whenever the bats die at the zoo they're like hey linda do you want these bats <laughs> and i'm like yeah. yeah so i get quite a few because they have that enclosure with and these particular bats in them so and um, sometimes when i get them they're really small like very small like the size of your fingernail really yeah or you know the full fingernail not the yeah. tip but you know they're pretty that's pretty crazy tiny and so they're maybe they didn't make it to the point where they were flying so i have some of those and so where where's this uh big big one that from? one is not native not native to of Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Thank, yes. Thankfully, <laughs> if I ever saw that, I'd freak out. Well, you know what's funny is uh, the United States does not have flying fox in the continental United States, but sometimes you'll read the largest bat in the United States is this flying fox species, 
But really, it's off of the coast of the United States, like in those faraway U.S. territories. There's not Pacific really, side or Atlantic side? Uh, Pacific side. Okay. And so um, I can't even think of the names where there are some of these fruit bats, and they are different. But normally you'll see those. They're tropical. So they're found like So in, this is a bat. Yes. Not a flying fox. It will fly. Or do they kind of. That is a bat. It is a oh, really? type of bat. There's two big groups. When you look at all the bats of the world. I never thought a fox could fly anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's not very many um, species. There's less than 200 of those. And so. And they're totally different. Like these guys are all nocturnal. So they're feeding on primarily insects. Not all of them. But some have a designed, you know, diet that's different. But these guys are all frugivorous, so they're in their diurnal. So they're a lot of the time they're awake in the day. They make loud vocalizations. These guys, the small ones, echolocate. They're at night, you know. So they're different. And so Australia's got a lot of them. You know, there's tropical areas in Africa and then South America. Um, so the larger bats. So they're different. So we don't have them. And the yeah, zoo thankfully. used to have them. I think this one might have been, at one point in time, the Oklahoma City Zoo had a few fruit bats. And so Would you ever I have a desire to go to the Pacific and find them and study them live? I would love to go. You know, one of the professors here went to Australia um, a couple of times, and uh, he talked about how loud the bats were. And so in the parks and such, they're all over. And people that live there either ignore them or they're annoyed by them and I'd i probably thought, be annoyed well for me i'd be like oh wow look at this this is so <laughs> cool but i think that people because you know they have droppings and they're loud and they're mating or you know um he said they people seemed annoyed i thought it would be a dream to go and yeah i um i would love to go i would love to go to places like indonesia has like the highest bat diversity in the world really yeah, so never would have thought like, that. That's pretty interesting. I guess because it's island setting, and you know, we kind of have talked about that before in um, environmental bio. Just when you get to um, island archipelagos, you end up with a lot of diversity, True. and then if you're in a tropical environment, that allows for more diversity, you know, in and of itself. But then in an island situation, you'll have even more. So that's where. You know, there's a lot more bats there yeah. um, than really anywhere else. That's pretty awesome. So the echolocation, uh, that's like, uh, how does that work? What is it? Is it them screeching? Is it them, like, their version of yelling? Like, what is the uh, probably. their mode of communication? <laughs> or if, if Definitely when we go into caves, they're probably like, there they are again. <laughs> Here they uh, are. They can emit a sound, and they wait for the bounce back. So when they're... Because if you're flying and you're trying to capture something that's flying to eat, you need to do it efficiently. So for them, and and they can see, they have eyes. I mean, these guys, they use their vision and they don't echolocate. All these insectivorous bats, they're, they do have eyes. I've always been told so bats people, were blind. Yeah, right. That's, that's, the, all, that's the thing I always blind knew. Blind is a bat, but they actually have eyes. But it's uh, more efficient to bounce that sound out and wait for the bounce back of the sound. And so they're moving and then the insect is moving. And so as they keep emitting the sound, they keep getting the bounce back and that allows them to you know, locate them. And uh, they can emit off of a much higher frequency than what we can hear. So their range is much greater than ours. So they can oftentimes be 
releasing sounds we can't even hear it's inaudible to us and so and then sometimes they emit sounds where you can hear there's one bat in particular in oklahoma i have found if if we see every once in a while we'll see a big brown bat hibernating and uh, not very often have i seen these guys but sometimes they'll show up in some of these caves and if you handle these guys they will let you know how displeased they are <laughs> so they will I call them squawkers. And then uh, Dr. Kerr, I remember in mammalogy, was like it's called tick clot. That's what they call it, a tick clot, that okay. sound that you hear. And so, and it's it's a neat, to me, I love it, that sound. I don't know if I, I can't recall if I've ever heard a, maybe I have and didn't know it, but yeah. I can't recall like distinctively being like, oh, there's a bat. The only time that I've heard them and I recognized it was in a cave. And uh, I think, like, outside in the summer, like, there's bats in Oklahoma in the summer, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> that are feeding on insects. And especially, like, in the summer, if you look at, like, street lights and where all the bugs are. Yeah. You know, you'll see sometimes bats swooping in and out. And uh, in our neighborhood, I've seen them multiple times. There were people that have pools, swimming pools. Yeah. We'll see bats come swoop down and... They don't go into the water, though, do they? They just... Not purposefully. Definitely <laughs> not. I'm sure that at times accidents happen, but yeah. they try to swoop down and get the bugs and then get a drink because they drink oh, yeah. water. Yeah. So they'll swoop down, get a drink of water, and there's cool video footage of... Uh, I think it's on Archive of some of these bats. Like, uh, there's one called the bulldog bat that's not in Oklahoma, and it feeds on, like, fish or frogs. It can actually pick up, you know, from a stream or a pool of water and capture it in its, you know, feet. Yeah. Pull it up, and you can, in slow-mo, see them come down. And you can see bats drink water in <laughs> slow-mo. It's fascinating, that is, but they're that is moving pretty cool. quickly. I mean, they're moving yeah. really fast. One so. thing I found interesting that you had told me is how they hang from a branch or just hang from upside down and their and their joints kind of like they're made to just lock in that's pretty cool can you explain that a little bit can you explain that for listeners and viewers i think for bats just by design you know that's that's how their their mechanics are i have a bat skeleton that i brought but uh different you know for us because for them and uh you know i don't even know I've had this in the museum for a while. I don't even know where it came from, how long it's been there, what species this is necessarily, but it's a really cool bat skeleton. You can see that, uh, you know, their feet, they've got the same digits in their hands, which is basically their wings, same as us, right? So five, and, and then down here you see the five, the claws, and they've got sharp, you know, claws on their feet relative to their body size. Yeah. But so, and they're designed to hang upside down. So whenever they are roosting it the mechanism locks into place like their bones like if you think about locking your knee when you're walking or standing still you know you're moving it's moving and then when you stand still it kind of locks into place right and then if you like play sports and you turn at a funny angle um, that's not natural for movement you know you can damage your body or you know that's how people tear you know tendons and ligaments yeah. and what have you but um, the bones themselves get kind of misaligned. Well, with these guys, whenever they're hanging upside down, it's like 
that is the it's almost like a door lock yeah where you slide it and lock it right there it's almost just like that so when they're releasing it has to be released and then they move but uh and the other thing i found interesting was that they can't fly from they can't launch right right off the ground they had to like have a ledge or right uh, they had to just be off the ground and that's what you know for traditionally that's what you know everyone thought everyone saw and every once in a while i've seen a bat on the you know the ground like especially this uh this bat that eats grasshoppers you know they come down to the the blades of grass capture and then go back up and sometimes you'll see them kind of moving around with their thumb they'll move around on the ground but they still have to have some positioning to you know go into flight yeah so they can't just uh, you know use their their leg muscles to push up except for uh the vampire bat which i think i brought oh here it is so this there's i believe i don't know for sure but there's if you can just get closer to the mic one yeah more than one uh vampire bat in the world this is the only one we have in our museum here at ucf really but these guys have super strong leg muscles and then they have these big thumb units you can see a lot yeah. bigger than you know the smaller bats that feed on insects so from the ground their leg muscles are strong enough to launch give them a jump i guess yeah wow that's so pretty cool but really they're like strong. one of the only ones yeah that i'm aware of that's yeah. interesting so when you study the badge when this is one thing you've talked about in uh in the class is the white nose syndrome mm-hmm. what exactly is white nose syndrome that we know of i guess as a scientific community what is white nose syndrome and and one thing you had said is it's just now recently coming across the americas like it's just now coming going west yeah yeah it um showed up in the united states around 2006 and i remember hearing about it you know the following year Mm -hmm. there were publications and people talking about it so in some of the caves back east and northeastern u.s there were uh, populations of bats that were you know dying during the winter and you know they finally figured out that it was a fungus and um, initially they called it uh, geomyces destructans so geomyces means earth fungus and then destructans of course destructive yeah. and uh, they changed it later and said it's pseudogymnoascus destructant so they call it pd for short because that's a lot easier to say but um so they realized it was this fungus and the theory is that it was brought over possibly from cavers and maybe on their hiking boots or some of the spores and so um you know and it was in europe i guess over time things you know that had been exposed build up a resistance or a tolerance but it's like an invasive species when you bring something into an area where it's never been before it can have catastrophic yeah it can absolutely destroy yeah, communities right yeah and so that's pretty much what happened like they they think it shows up it kills a bunch of bats they try to figure out you know what the cause was they finally do it's this fungus and then they look at the mechanics of it and start looking at metabolism and hibernating bats you know they pack on and the oklahoma bats are the same way they'll pack on like 25 percent or so of their body weight and um, i haven't researched that in a long time but to (laughs) give you like real 
values. But yeah. um, we looked at that in my Otis Velifer, you know, my favorite bat in Oklahoma. And um, we, we looked at their weights going in and their weights throughout and then at the end. And obviously, if you have organisms going in and waking up, you know, bats while they're hibernating, they'll lose more fat stores. So there were recommendations by, you know, the American Society of Mammalogists at some point, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, maybe, where they suggested you limit going into hibernacula and definitely in maternity roosts when they're having yeah. babies. So, you know, we had been going in and collecting data to look at sex ratios over time and population size and the largest hibernaculum for my bat, what I call my bat, um, is in Oklahoma. So even though they're found in other parts, you know, they're in Texas, they're in Kansas, in Oklahoma is the largest group. So, you know, we know that bat a lot. We know a lot about it. Yeah. And, and then the free-tailed bat, um, the ones that migrate up from Mexico, we know quite a bit about those guys. And so anyway, we started going back and looking at uh, their weights, and that's what they started doing back east. They were like, what are they weighing going in? And they realized that the fungus basically causes them to wake up more than normal. So bats in torpor, it's not like a hibernation where you're sleeping, it's a complete dormancy. Bats will wake up periodically throughout, you know, every, I don't know, three to four weeks. And then, you know, in Oklahoma, we have those crazy warm days. Yeah, and yeah. so, and sometimes you'll see a bug or two. And so, you know, it's not that uncommon for them to wake up periodically, but the idea is when there are no insects, be dormant very little metabolic activity going on so the fungus disturbs the bats and causes them to wake up more than they normally would so packing on 25 percent of your weight to get through the winter is not enough yeah. if you're waking up more than you're supposed to more than you normally and do and that's yeah. what happens so it killed lots of them and these and we were thinking maybe because it gets colder back east that the Oklahoma bats might not be as susceptible to it because, you know, even though it gets cold here and we are in a temperate zone, you know, we're not having those extreme winters like there. So it is a cold loving uh, fungus. And so, you know, we've been watching it, monitoring it, and there's people all over the country and that uh, groups of bat researchers that get together and share information. In Oklahoma, the wildlife department pulled together some bat research people and the fish and wildlife guys from Tulsa that have caves that they monitor in the eastern half of the state where we have endangered species uh, you know bats yeah um, and then some cave guys that go into caves the grottos um, some of those guys in Nature Conservancy all got together and um, we formed this group that started the bat working group and we started meeting annually and uh, sometimes biannually and so to discuss what's going on and um, this lady um, that kind of spearheaded the national information, the data collected by people in each of the states, try to compile, um, you know, how fast it was moving west. And, and so they started getting the states to go out to caves and swab bats so that you can take a cotton swab and you have the buffer and you, you know, swab the bat and then get it analyzed and so there were a couple of labs that um, would get that information and test it and see does it have PD is it on the bats and then there were even soil samples collected to see if maybe wow. the spores were there and so um, yeah it was showing up in some of the caves this you know PD was there or it might even have been on a bat but we were not seeing 
deaths resulting from it. Mm -hmm. And so, but yeah, I remember when it showed up in Oklahoma, uh, we were like all held our breath and went, oh, what's going to happen this winter? And I'm not going out in the field like I was. And then my mentor retired and he's not going out in the field like he was. Yeah. we still are in touch with the some of the researchers that are still collecting data. And there's someone down in Chickasha, Jason Shaw, that he's going out and swabbing and collecting data. And we visit with him. And we worked on a publication recently where we were trying to get the information out there that we had already, um, you know, accumulated about Velifer in the hopes that if it does, you know, spread across the state, that we have like a baseline of information. And so, um, and I think a lot of groups are kind of scrambling to do that. And so. Yeah. One of the papers I read that I saw was pretty interesting was about the bat that wasn't native from here, but was found in the Western part of Oklahoma, I believe. That was pretty interesting that it's not native. What do you think caused it to and I totally meant to bring it. I was going to bring it to you. I should show it to you sometime. The one that is that I have, the specimen, this one, is uh, a little bit smaller than the one that we have that one isolated record of. This one, uh, there's not very many of these in Oklahoma either. And it's in the same group as the Mexican free tail, the migratory bat. You know, this is the same group. They migrate. And so the one that shows up in Oklahoma a few years back uh, does not belong here. And so, of course, my mentor, Dr. Kerr, was super excited. Because yeah, it's like something new. <laughs> it was like Christmas, right? What's going so, on? So, yeah, wow. You know, and then we had uh, read that there was an isolated instance in Texas as well. And both of those bats were rabid. And so um, they somehow just got, you know, rabies is you know in lots of animals yeah. but um you know bats always get the bad rap <laughs> of being you know rabid <laughs> and so i don't think you know if you look across the board it, it's not a very high rate unless you're that one person that you know one one percent you know of the people that get it from bats handling or you know bats that are not you know, healthy that are on the ground. You're yeah. not ever supposed to do that. But people that turn them into the rabies lab, which we've looked at, um, you know, it comes out to be, I believe it's like nine to 10% of the bats turn out to be rabid, but that's looking at data that's already, you know, it's a little bit altered data. Yeah. You're not sampling out in the wild. You're sampling groups of bats that are specifically okay. turned in for rabies. So, you know, to show that only 10% of those guys have it, it kind of indicates to me that it's really not that prevalent. But if you do end up with rabies, you get, you know, confused, deterioration of the brain. And so it makes sense in a way that that crazy one bat. I get confused all the time. I might have rabies. (laughs) (laughs) We, whenever you research things and then you get sick you start thinking oh i must have that virus or that that has happened to me i'm like oh i have antivirus uh or i have rabies after i wrote about rabies i thought oh my gosh i'm not feeling well i could have been exposed i'm real confused and yeah this bat i i don't know if he hitched a ride on you know it could have been a train or an automobile but he was way off course because normally you see those like near Florida, so the eastern, you know, U.S., the bonneted bat. And so the fact that he was here in Oklahoma, the one, (laughs) is pretty cool. And so we have that specimen, and uh, 
So whenever you uh, study mammals, if you have something rare, and, you know, I've told you guys before, I can't even kill a spider. Yeah. But if it's dead, I'm like, bring it on. Yeah. And so we'll preserve it. And so, yeah, the, like I said, there's not very many of these in Oklahoma. And we have one in our museum. And then the one record of the bonneted bat, we have that. It's in liquid preservation, though, because it, you know, was rabid. Yeah, so, so it did have rabies? Yes. Yeah. It, there was also something in one of the papers, and it might not have been that specific paper, but uh, how if you find a bat that's not native for the area, it's either, it could possibly be like an explorer of the species, a, like a journeyman, so to speak, mm -hmm. or or it could be due to like the climate change yeah, stuff right. where it get, might be getting warmer, say in like right. the Florida, Georgia area. Yeah. And so they're trying to find a yeah. cooler. Do you think the, which one do you think is more reasonable to to assume, I guess, is like, do you think it might just be the warmer temperatures that are slight, but to them it affects them a lot? I or do you think it's a journeyman thing? I think we see that thing? a lot in, uh, in mammals in general, well, and other, you know, even insects. And a lot of things are disrupted compared to, you know, the past. Yeah. You look at what's happening one year to the next and getting warmer, getting warmer, and things are moving and... You know, there's been unusual behaviors showing up in, in all kinds all, of animals. All the animals, really. Yeah, and, and plants even, yeah. I mean, and everything. And so I think with the, you know, bats have this great ability uh, to move more than other things. Like mice can't move as far as like bats because yeah. they're flying. And so they probably do... Um, they probably do, you know, move further, faster if they need to. Uh, but I think that bats oftentimes have an affinity for their cave location or their area. And so, um, but I do think we're seeing things moving because of that for sure. And so, um, or dissipating populations, you know, dwindling. And so... That Which isn't good either. Right, right. So that that's why the it is important. The guys that are looking at endangered bats in eastern Oklahoma, those fish and wildlife guys and our wildlife department people um, try to stay on top of that and limit, you know, exposure to people um, and just try to keep a handle on, you know, what's going on in those caves. So there are some bats in eastern Oklahoma that don't go any further than that kind of that line of, counties and yeah. on the eastern part and so some of them are federally endangered and so you know we definitely are interested in what's happening with you know uh, the climate and you know how does that impact insects and and yeah you'll see more movement for sure and so um the white nose syndrome thing is you know kind of a separate issue because yeah. that's just hibernation that we're we're mainly focused on that i think the migratory bats um because they are moving and they're not here during the winter. Like, you know, you don't know when it's going to show up. It's shown up in, you know, several different species, but uh, we haven't hit on it in all the species. We, and Oklahoma's got great bat diversity. Yeah. We've got, like, more than uh, more than most. Yeah, so, for, the, for all the states. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got, like, close to probably half because wow. the estimate of uh, North American bats or, or United States in particular and you can read anywhere from like 45 to around 50, you know, give or take. Um, and it depends on what someone's calling a separate species. Like we have a, a, a big-eared bat, and there's two different species in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, some places might not. I mean, I assume they call them both separate species now. But at one time, you know, 
things might be together and later someone will come along and do genetics work yeah and go, really that's two species or that's not this species like we thought it was it's something else and so that happens. So now we're up to 25. Wow. That's <laughs> Different, crazy. Including the one isolated bonneted bat that was rabid that ended oh, up yeah, being yeah. here. You know, we count that guy. Oh, for sure. Because he was in Oklahoma. Yep. He died <laughs> so, here, so that's his right. death place. Yeah, exactly. The so. other thing that, aside from bats, as much as you love bats, the other thing that I've noticed you take a very good pride in because you teach it, in the environmental sustainability biology is like climate change. You're very, you're very, uh, aware i guess and in, interested in caring for the climate and ch yeah. making things better so what are some things that over the past few years here on campus that you've seen get better i guess in the in the go green movement yeah i think that uco seems to really be interested in moving in that direction or there's groups of people here that i think are, really oklahoma yeah, in general wants so. to i feel good about it i mean i remember it it doesn't seem like it was that long ago when you know we had little tiny recycle bins at our our homes in Edmond. Now they've got the big ones. They finally transitioned yeah. to the big ones because I have way more that goes into recycling <laughs> than the trash. And it, you know I still think we should have recycle pickup every week rather than every other because trash coming every week doesn't help me. I need like recycling. But the university, I remember when the bins showed up like uh you know it's probably been maybe close to 10 years now i don't know eight years they showed up and um and then they were all over like even in the building i'm in all the time how hall i don't get out of there very often <laughs> but um now on all the floors there's you know recycling for aluminum and then there's paper and uh, plastic and i love that and, yeah you know sometimes and i think i told you guys in class like when i went to berkeley for this uh, data conference a couple years ago there were like zero trash cans around and i thought what do i do with my gum that you know yeah. is in a tissue because it doesn't really and they have these big bins and apparently because my brother's in portland they're the same way there it's like you're either composting or you're recycling it and not as it's many like mandatory are, yeah it's they're like not part of the moving city. into trash yeah. they're not they're trying to move away from it and i think uco has done a great job with that and then just Earth Day has been going on for a long time on campus, and a guy in my department, Dr. Bass, um, he's very environmentally minded, and he um, he was involved with that every year for years and years. And so um, even back in the 90s when I was an undergrad, they would have an Earth Day fair, and every year they did that. And, um, you know, it's kind of transitioned over time. And now, uh, like yesterday, yeah i didn't have much time to go yeah. through but um you know one of my friends was there doing a booth for you know water and lakes and um, i think it's really neat that now they're kind of giving ideas to people like there's compost information like how do you compost and then there's a plant sale like the biology club is selling plants and then you've got sustainability is out there i mean the fact that uco has a sustainability group is amazing yeah like, it really is i think that's the first neat. part i think that's the first part of like realizing there's an issue because yeah. there is an issue and a lot of people don't be right. don't believe there is but i think it's just because they're not aware of the information they're right. not taking the classes like sustainability that. they're not yeah. looking at these events that are going on like earth day they're not right. looking into these organizations that are putting out these facts and they so they have no knowledge of it and i think 
I think it starts with classes like uh, sustainability. It, it starts with the students. I mean, yeah, it really does. I think the you guys are going to move everyone forward. I definitely believe that. I think all the college students, because there's no better time in your life, really. I mean, when you get out of college, you have great times and a family and a future. But what I mean is at that point in time, it's like there's all this information, there's all this knowledge, and there's all this sharing. And so it's a unique time in anyone's life when they're going through college just to be amongst other people that are trying to do the same thing they are, which is learn. And yeah. so I think college students are very open-minded about, <clears throat> you know, things. And, and you seem to want to learn about issues and topics and have discussions. And I love that. And so, and you know, my, my examples in class a lot of times are – you know, our book that we have, they talk about all these college campuses that are doing, you know, things that are more sustainable. And so UCO has definitely I mean, moved in that direction. There's a guy, Eric Hemphill, that is, you know, organizes. He's like the, the point guy on a lot of things going on with the campus. And he's always trying to think of better things we can do or um, how can we move forward and uh, so just having someone doing that now, whereas years back, you know, there wasn't any yeah. point person and there wasn't an office of sustainability and there wasn't like a student organization. And so I think, uh, you know, as students are moving through the system and they've grown up hearing climate change yeah. and global warming and they've maybe experienced some of the outfall from that, that they might get more involved and you know, the kids you you read about, I read about some of these high schoolers that um, are trying to really make an impact, and they're angry. Yeah. You know, the, a lot of them are angry because they're frustrated, I, think I guess, is maybe a better, they're, they're baffled that we, uh, the adults in the world, are not doing enough, and that they can't figure it out, and they're like, we're kids, and we see it. You know, how do you guys not, and I told you, it's like, my generation maybe and older that you know is just kind of like well i'm you know not my problem or yeah. you know or they're not they don't care or they don't know enough about it i think a lot of it is kids are growing up with technology so they have the information right at their fingertips they could be you know watching a random youtube video and a climate change video comes up so they could it at least brings it to their attention and i think classes like the one you teach for sustainability are important because kids go in there whether they choose to take it or they're forced to take it <laughs> right. whatever i think they i think it should be a required class i really do since since i've started taking it i think it should be a required one yeah. because you go into it and you get all this knowledge that's not just useless knowledge it's actually connected to today like it's not just you know history of dinosaurs which yeah is really cool yeah. but it doesn't really impact us today in the moment i think classes like that since it do you can make connections that are to things that are happening not right. just today but tomorrow even yeah. And it's you can connect to it so much easier and I think that's what should be done is is kids need to take that class to see it and it will impact it because it's impacting them today. I think with um because for me and they do other there's other classes on campus and I'm not even totally aware of all of them. I didn't I just found out like from Eric Hemphill recently that you can minor in sustainability at UCO really? and I didn't even know that. That's awesome. Because it, that's kind of in another area and um in biology of course i'm focusing on you know the organisms and you know and how it ties in for me i do tend to look at the mammals outside of humans more than humans i guess yeah. but environmental biology 
you know, in that class, I I have to look at our impact because we're the ones impacting it. And, and so we're looking at all those aspects of biology. And I think all the students, I'm pretty sure you have to have a biology class or a science yeah, class you do. or a lab. Yep. But you don't have to have environmental. Yeah. And so it wasn't offered for a while. It used to be years ago, all the biology majors took environmental biology and it was geared towards, you know, majors in biology yeah. that kind of had a little bit of a background. And, um, and so I took that as an undergrad and the class kind of went away for a while. And then, um, Dr. Paul Stone, he's really into conservation. He, he's a turtle researcher. He and his wife go out to New Mexico every summer, a couple times, summer and they've been doing that for years and years and they're both really into conservation and um ecology and the impact with the environment and so he taught conservation biology i think to i believe it was to majors and he thought you know what we need to reinstate our environmental biology for undergrads that have to take a science class and he kind of opened that door you know a few years back and then um, he enjoyed it and he said, what do you think? Cause you're, you know, like-minded and you feel the same way yeah. that, you know, Marie and I do, would you like to teach it? And I said, oh yeah, I would love to teach it. And I have never loved a class as much as I love environmental biology. I can tell I love that you have class. a passion for it. And <laughs> I actually, I appreciate it because I've always like been aware of things that like plastic is an issue. There's plastic in the ocean. I've always been aware of it, but I think that class really helps fine tune the knowledge you know, more so. It, it brings in detail rather than just general. I kind of like, nerd out a little bit. I do recognize that. I do at times just totally, you I know. think students appreciate it, though. I, I do. I think when you go into something you care about, it brings more, like, you can, you, you're able to, you want to listen to it more rather than you're just reading, you know, just putting out a fact and that's it. I think when you, when you explain things that you really care about and find passion in, in a way that can connect with the students. I think students really yeah. appreciate that. I know I do, and yeah. I think other students do too. I hope. I think that if nothing else, when students leave the class, um, they know that at least I think it's super important. But well, at I least it opens them, them up to the idea. And, it and it brings the learning. discussion to them. And you yeah. got your class is great. Like some semesters are different than others, and sometimes the classes are more engaged and more vocal and more involved and more interested. Some classes are more quiet and subdued and and you wonder are they getting this are they you know are they just sitting there i don't want to ever offend anyone i i think i i try to say that a lot to students that you know sometimes when you talk about biology and something you're passionate about that you you know you end up you you express your own opinions yes so sometimes i say and i i try to say that this is how i feel But I want you to investigate how research, you yeah. feel. And even though I'm saying this or you hear other people saying things, you should always explore for yourself, which is what a science-minded person does. A biologist is seeking the truth about life. Yeah. And, you know, there's a reason why we're doing it. We want to understand where we fit in and what we can do and the interactions amongst things. And it's powerful you know knowledge is power and it really um, is yeah if you stick your head in the sand and hope that things will get better and you don't know your role in that and what you can do then it won't be very helpful to the rest of us so i want everyone to at least 
like I say, I'm either the angel or the devil <laughs> on the shoulder. When you throw plastic in the trash can, maybe you'll in the future go, oh, but I think know, that's Professor Larks would be real disappointed in I me. think that's what you bring to the table, or not just you, but just anyone that's talking about it is just the discussion, just the idea. Whether people want to or end up agreeing with it or not, at least the idea is there. I think it's important to keep an open mind and at least not totally, you know, step on an idea just because you don't like it yeah it, it it might even be factual it might not be but i think it's important to not totally close yourself off from different different ideas and perspectives on life i think oh, i right. think it's very important so we should always be open-minded and open to hear new information yeah. and you know things evolve and change whether we want them to or not so you just have to you know take it as it comes and um, and sometimes you have to retool your own thoughts on things. And so, um, yeah, I think that uh, the class, I try not to get very apocalyptic. And that sometimes <laughs> I think it does seem like doom and gloom, but I am super hopeful. I really am. And I really feel like we're moving forward in, in a, a really good direction. And whether people believe in the whole global warming climate change aspect or not even if you take that out of the equation because that seems to be controversial yeah. with some people still today if you take that out and you just focus on the interactions between us and the natural world i mean that by itself is important enough to be interested in and learning about because it's the food you eat it's the air you breathe it's walking outside and being water you drink yeah the water it's yeah. everything and yeah. so whenever you know because i've always loved you know biology or science my whole life so i do find it strange when people <laughs> are not interested i'm like how can you not be it's like it's everywhere it's all yeah. around you it's you it's your life it's what's in you it's what you're exposed to it's how you survive but not everyone is interested. I recognize that. Yeah. So I feel like that class, environmental bio, is an opportunity for me to pique someone's interest or maybe you know show them something that, oh, they hadn't thought about that it is cool Absolutely. or it is important. And Yeah. Like I said, I've looked into some local organizations I've told you to about, and hopefully I can talk to them because that's the goal of the show is yeah. to bring bring discussions to the table and talk about ideas that are either not being talked about or just talked about them in, for, in more detail. And so I really appreciate you coming on and talk about bats and climate yeah, change, stuff you. like that. You, you've taught me things and told me things that I wasn't aware of because <laughs> you guys are way more techie than me. And My friends won't believe that. They won't <laughs> believe I taught anyone anything. Well, all of the, the podcasts alone and the Joe Rogan and uh, some of the wildlife people that you had mentioned to me, I was unaware yeah. of and i thought oh wow this is really cool i love that i love There's that a lot students of cool stuff. can teach you know professors and and people your family your friends information too it's it's part of the story right our yeah. story is to share what we know and well hopefully each other. hopefully yeah. someone's interest is peaked out there from bads or climate change oh, or right. just or yeah. just interested in following a path that you end up liking even if it's just who would have thought? No, Did you ever right. think you'd go into no. bats? I mean, you never no. know. So where can people find some of your work, your paper, if they papers that they wanted to research if they wanted to or anything that you wanted to, uh, like an organization you wanted to give yeah, a shout out there's to? The, I think probably in the United States anyway, Bat Conservation International is a big, you know, place you can go to find information 
about bats on online and they're uh, housed in Austin, Texas. And so, um, and a guy that uh, I've, I've actually read a lot of his papers when I was a graduate student, um, Merlin Tuttle, he founded that and he's written a lot on bats. And so when I was a graduate student, I was poring over his papers. Yeah. And so, um, and I don't know that he's much involved now, you know, um, but he started that and that's a good place to go. And in Oklahoma, the wildlife department has some information and they came out with this uh, field guide on bats a few years back. The bat working group, some of us got together and, and gave the wildlife department some of our information. They pulled it together, and, and so they have this, you know, I'm, I believe it's a free field guide, and it's online. You can awesome. access it online through ODWC, and so that's, I actually took this picture. Right awesome, here. that's cool. So that's You made available. the cover. <laughs> yeah, I made the cover, yeah. and uh, that's actually that small bat, the pipistrelle. So, um you know, as far as my publications, you know, I, I my few pubs on bats, you can, uh, the UCO biology department, there's a link under, you know, each of the faculty members on papers maybe that they've uh, written or, you know, our UCO museum, there's a link on that too. Okay. Um, information about the museum. So, yeah, thank you for, yeah, thank for you. the interest. I'm always excited if someone's excited learning more about bats. Yeah, I I'm definitely like, yes, learned a lot today, and that's it's awesome. This is my favorite awesome. thing. Yeah. Whether it's a kindergarten class at you know, Centennial, I go over <laughs> there almost every October and do bats. Um, my friend is a teacher there, or it's an adult group and or you know, a student that I have. It's super exciting, but thank you for, for asking me and being interested. And I appreciate <laughs> I you coming honored. on and doing it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Professor Linda Louch, University of Central Oklahoma. Go ahead, like, share, comment, subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thank, thank you. Thank you.